Well, it is Easter Sunday morning, isn't it? Tremendous, tremendous day in our redemptive history, isn't it? <clears throat> I was thinking this morning about the verses, verses in Corinthians and where Paul says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? That's a tremendous question to ask on a day like today. But today, we are in Romans chapter 14 and we are at the uh, conclusion of this chapter. It's not the conclusion of Paul's discussion of this subject that he's been talking about in chapter 14 because he'll go on and talk about it some more in chapter 15. But it is, uh, it is kind of the conclusion of chapter 14. And uh, last week we were looking at verses 13 through 18, and today I want to pick up with 19 and look down through the end of the chapter. Let's uh, begin reading just again to get the context in verse uh, 13, which is even at that interrupting or kind of coming into the middle of his discussion. But let's pick it up in verse 13 where he says, Therefore, let us not <coughs> judge one another anymore. But rather, determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is good for you, uh, what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and for the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay? Well, looking down there through verses 13 through 18 that we looked at last week, what kind of things do you remember we talked about? I know some of you were here. Okay. 
Okay, okay. We've talked about the weak and the strong. He's been talking about that all the way through chapter 14. And again here, he's talking about the weak and the strong. Who's he referring to when he's talking about the weak and the strong? Okay, okay. He's really dealing with the area of conscience or conviction about non-essential things. Things that are not... Uh, things that are not essential to our fellowship uh, as Christians. Uh, and in a particular case in point here, he's talking primarily about the subject of eating meat. He introduces in the passage we're looking at today the subject of wine. Uh, he also talks about uh, the issue of, uh, of uh, holidays, special days, that sort of thing. He's, he's talked some about that. And the point is that there are some what we would call non-essential areas. These are not deal breakers as far as our fellowship together as Christians. And, and he, says, he says there are those who are strong. That is, it's not that they're, and he calls them strong in faith, but, or that their faith is strong. But he's not talking about their faith in Christ. He's not talking about salvation or something like that. He's talking in a very limited sense in the air, in, uh, as has to do with the idea of conscience or the idea of our conviction that we as individuals hold in these areas of non-essentials. That's what he's talking about. And there are some, he says, who are the strong, whose conviction or whose conscience is that Christ has liberated us, He has freed us, and He has brought us to a point where we understand that all the things that God has created and placed in the world are good, uh, and they are there for our enjoyment and they are there uh, for us to receive from God with gratitude. And, uh, and, and so there's, they experience tremendous freedom in that respect. There are others, on the other hand, who have uh, scruples or convictions in, in some of these non-essential areas. And they believe they're very important, like the keeping of special days. You, you need to keep this day set aside and this day is holy and not do certain things or do do certain things on those days. Or there was, for some of them, the subject of eating meat. And as we talked about, it has to do, uh, apparently, in the context there that he's writing to the church in Rome, it has to do with some of the carryover of the Jewish influence in the church and that, that uh, some objected to eating meat because it was... Uh, because there was no way to know whether this meat had been prepared or, or dealt with in a proper way as to whether or not the meat was ceremonially or ritually clean uh, if you bought it in the marketplace. And so there was so the safest thing was just to abstain from meat. Uh, and then, as I said in the passage we'll look at today, he introduces the subject of wine and the commentators. Uh, some of the leading commentators on the passage uh, make the point that that the objection, uh, uh, whatever the objection was in Rome to the drinking of wine, it probably did not pertain to the issue of the aspect of intoxication, the, po- the potential for intoxication. That was not why it was abstained from, but rather it was abstained from for the same reason that meat was abstained from. Because it, it, you couldn't know, there was no way to know whether or not this wine had been somehow involved in pagan worship 
or how it had been prepared, had it been prepared in what we might call a kosher manner, that sort of thing. And for that reason, it was safest just to totally abstain from wine. Okay, so there are these areas that that uh, uh, that some in the church had scruples of, particularly the Jewish believers or those people who had become Jews, Gentiles who had become uh, or associated with the Jewish uh, faith, what we call the God-fearing Gentiles, who had become associated with the Jewish faith and then ultimately finally converted to Christianity. They're bringing into the church uh, these scruples and these convictions, this conscience about some of these, uh, quote, non-essential areas. Those he classifies as the weak. They're not weak in character. They're not weak in their walk with God. They are simply weak in this area of conscience or conviction. Okay, so we have these two categories. What else did we talk about last week? Okay, Paul himself is absolutely convinced and since Paul's convinced, there's a pretty good argument for it here, right? That there's nothing unclean in itself. That's very clear. He's not saying that it's not possible to take something that's clean and use it in an unholy or unrighteous way. He makes it clear here that at least one way you could take something that's clean and use it in an unholy way. But intrinsically, he's saying, there's nothing that's simply unclean because it itself is unclean. There's no, there's no food which in and of itself is unclean or unholy. There's no drink that in and of itself is unclean or unholy. Okay. There may be a way we use it which is unholy or unclean, which he, as I said, will give us an example of in this passage. But there's nothing unholy or unclean in itself. And he's very emphatic about this. He says, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that this is the case. What else? <clears throat> What is it he wanting us to guard against? Pardon? Okay. He's strongly warning. In this case, he's addressing the strong. In the previous passage, we looked at the week before, he talked some to the weak about not judging those who are strong. But now, in in the passage we looked at last week, and most of the passage we're looking at this week, he's addressing the strong. And he's urging those who are strong, those who have this tremendous sense of great sense of great liberty or freedom in Christ, not to in some way cause their weaker brother or weaker sister to stumble or to, as we'll see in verse 20 today, to offend them. And we talked to we tried to clarify exactly what what does it Paul have in mind there? What is he what is he prohibiting us from doing? Okay, he doesn't want us to flaunt our liberty. Uh, In in contrast, uh, some people read this passage and they think that what Paul is saying is that if if there's any Christian who has scruples in an area of non-essentials, it's the duty or the obligation of the strong person to never do that. Okay. But we pointed out last week what the problem is with that understanding of the passage. 
All we have to do is go down through a list of all the things that some Christian somewhere thinks we shouldn't do or some Christian somewhere thinks we must do in these areas of non-essentials and pretty soon we're going to find ourselves in a straitjacket, right? We can't even walk out the door because there are all this list. And I we listed some last week. Areas of dress, areas of conduct, kind of music you listen to, the kind of things you property you own, possessions you own, and on and on and on and on and on. And if we limit ourselves or restrict ourselves to only doing those things which nobody disapproves of, we have a Christian version of political correctness. We have the church's version of political correctness, right? And... And so that clearly cannot be what Paul has in mind. Furthermore, Paul himself is very open as he writes to the Romans about his liberty. So even the weak people in the church in Rome know that Paul has this sense of liberty and freedom. Okay. So Paul is not suggesting that it's wrong to ever exercise a liberty that somebody else doesn't have. He's not suggesting either that it's always wrong to even let somebody know there's such a liberty for fear that they might somehow be offended. So when Paul is talking about somebody being offended and that we're not to offend a brother, he's not using the word the way we usually use it today. The way we use it today is, you know, don't ever say anything, don't ever do anything that bothers anybody. He's not saying that, okay? If we, if we try to keep from ever doing anything that bothers somebody, you know, then, then we, we're going to be, as I said, we're going to be in a straitjacket. We're not going to be able to live, okay? So he's not saying that you just don't ever, you don't ever do anything that somebody might think is a little strange or they may not agree with or they might actually feel uncomfortable with you doing it. He's not saying that. Rather, what he's referring to is that the weak person has a conscience that says they cannot do this thing. And what he's warning us about is living in such a way, flaunting our freedom in such a way that it encourages that person to act contrary to their conscience. We use the example, say, if we had if we had here at Trinity, we had a number of people who had very deep convictions against eating meat. And then we were to have our agape meal here in the in the gym, had a big agape meal and we had a big spread and we had all the roasts and chicken and everything all out there to eat. And they came in and some of us who have the liberty to eat meat were eating meat. And 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 this contingent of the church that didn't have that liberty uh, are there, and there could be some who are wavering. They are, as he says in the passage we're going to look at today, they are doubting about this whole area, and they have doubts about whether or not they should eat meat. And they come into our they come into our agape meal, and there's this giant spread of meat, and and they see half the church is over here, and we're all chowing down on our roast beef and fried chicken, and and. Uh, and they are tempted to, you know, just pick up a leg of chicken and, and go and sit down and eat that along with their vegetables. And if we, in living our freedom, cause someone who doubts to act contrary to their conscience, 
we have sinned. We have offended our brother. That's what he means by offending our brother. It means in some way, knowingly encouraging or enticing or tempting a brother or sister who's weaker to act contrary to their conscience. I've got two hands popping up at once back there. I'll start with you, Blake. There's a measure of intentionality too, right? Trying to get them to accept the freedom you Yes, and that's why I made the comment knowingly because, because there are always things that we, we might do inadvertently, you know, and it was never our intention to do it. Okay, so uh, so I, I think to some degree there's at least if we're aware that there's somebody that has this struggle or, or I shouldn't even call it a struggle has a has a scruple in this area. If we're aware of that, then we certainly need to be we need to be cautious. And there is also the element of intentionality, which is which he deals with in verse one of chapter 14. He says, receive those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinion. So certainly we would never want to have the objective of trying to entice someone. Gary, you had a point or question. If, if we think about offending versus stumbling, the way offending is used today is kind of like, I don't want to offend him because that's going to hurt my relationship with him. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Well put. Well stated. Okay. Well, let's explore some more uh, than uh, some of the things he says at the end of, of the lesson last week. Uh, down there in verse uh, uh, in verse uh, uh, seventeen, he says, "For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace." And joy in the Holy Spirit. And so his point is, the kingdom of God, and he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's writing here, of course, to the church in Rome. He's writing about their relationship with each other. So clearly what Paul has in mind here when he's referring to the kingdom of God in this context is he's thinking about the church. And he says the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Now, I know that might offend some of you Baptists, okay? Because we think it's all about eating, okay? But it's really not, and we know it's not, okay? But so the church isn't about eating and drinking, okay? But it is rather about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us the kingdom of God. Any group of people can come together and eat and have a good time. But only the kingdom of God can come together in righteousness and in peace and in joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. So if we get focused on eating and drinking and what I can eat or what I can't, and that becomes our focus, we've lost the true understanding of what the kingdom of God is. And so he says, then, then picking up that thought then in verse 19, He says, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and for the building up of one another or the edifying of one another. So Paul is saying, "Okay, so this is how we this is how we live then. Because the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How are we going to live in relationship to one another within the context of the body of Christ? Well, we're going to pursue not food and drink. Okay, we're not going to pursue those things. Those are not an issue. Those are incidental. They're not really important. 
What we're going to pursue is the things that make for peace and the things which make for building up one another, edifying one another. Okay, so that's those are the kind of things that we should be focusing on. Those are the kind of things we should be putting our energy into, not putting a great deal of energy into disputes about non-essential things, but putting our efforts and our energies and 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 controlling our conduct in such a way that that is conducive to the peace and the tranquility of the body of Christ and the building up of one another in the faith. That's how I think, or that's how I should think. Oftentimes, tragically, when someone opens the doors of a church and walk in a church, they're walking into a war zone, aren't they? They're walking into a place where Christians are at one another's throats over any number of things. And almost always, well, not almost always, but many times, it's over non-essentials, isn't it? It's over how somebody eats or how somebody dresses or the music they listen to or what kind of music we play in our worship service or, or on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And we quarrel and we bicker and we fight over all kinds of things. And the world looks on this and shakes their head. Worse than that, the Lord looks on it and He weeps. Right? The church is not to be a war zone. Now, that's, that doesn't say there aren't going to be times when there's conflict in the church. Clearly, there are. There were in the New Testament. Paul deals with conflict. And when it comes time to fight, Paul's ready to pick up the sword and fight. Okay? So, there are some essentials over which we do make an issue. But it is a tragedy when the church becomes a war zone over things that the Scripture has not made an essential. And so he says that, and again here, he's addressing primarily the strong here. Okay, Because remember, we talked about the weak, and the weak, as we said, they think they're strong. <clears throat> they think they're strong <clears throat> because they think it takes a lot of strength to do the things they do, to deny themselves in these areas. And in fact, it does take a great deal of character to do that. And I think they're to be commended for that. Okay, So they don't think of themselves as weak. And they don't tend to think of these non-essential areas as so non-essential, right? Therefore, it's incumbent upon the strong because they know they're non-essentials. And they know that they have strength. They have freedom. Because they know this, it's incumbent upon the strong, particularly to be vigilant for the peace of the church. It's incumbent upon the strong to act in a way that is conducive to the peace of the church. Because they have an understanding and they have a perspective that the weak do not have. Now, the weak are enjoined to do some things that enhance the peace of the church. Specifically, they're enjoined not to judge the strong. (laughs) We covered that earlier in the chapter. Excuse me. So, the weak have an obligation to have a responsibility to the peace. But particularly in this passage, Paul is putting the weight of obligation here primarily upon the strong. Because they understand this is not an essential area. And they understand they have freedom. 
And as one commentator said, uh, Robert Mount said in his commentator, he says, freedom is a right. It is not a guide to conduct. Those are two different things. Freedom is a right that we have. It's a privilege we have. But freedom is not a guide that tells me how I ought to act. If I am free to do something, I am not necessarily obligated to do it. Okay? It doesn't... Because I have the... Many times today, we think if I've got the freedom of something, I've got to do it. Well, no. Paul's whole point is because I have a freedom, I don't have to do it. And if I can... And if I can uh, decline to do it, if I can if I can refrain from doing it, and by doing that I can love a brother or sister in Christ, that's the desirable thing. So freedom is a right; it's not a guide to conduct. Okay, and uh, and so it's incumbent upon those who are strong to be particularly vigilant and careful about this issue of the peace of the church. And, and furthermore, not just that there would be peace in the church, but that the church would be built up. The building up of one another, he says. Okay. Well, okay, here's my chance. I've got liberty. And I know I've got liberty. Christ has given me liberty. So here's my brother or sister in Christ and they don't have liberty. And so I'm going to convince them they have liberty and then I'm going to be building them up, right? Sounds good to you. (laughs) Actually, no, right? He says no. Why? Well, he says, in in the next verse, in verse 20, he says, you do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are clean, he says, but they are evil to the one who eats and gives offense. So he says, priority number one, we don't tear down the work of God. Now, I want you to just take a moment and think about how you got to where you are in your relationship with God today. Because that was the work of God in you, right? And, And if I were to interview each one of you individually, I suspect what I would hear you say is that has been a slow and at times excruciating process, right? When you think about what has been invested for God to to do His work in your life, I mean, we'd have to start clear back at the atonement, wouldn't we? We'd have to start with the things we were remembering on Friday, the crucifixion of the Son of God. It starts there. And then it... And then it involves, of course, the resurrection. And then, of course, in your own personal life, subjectively, it involves his wooing you over a period of time. Maybe you came to Christ when you were very young. In the, uh, young. Maybe it was later in life you came to Christ, but there was a time of God was wooing you. He was drawing you. He was, God was working in your life and he was bringing you to himself through a series of circumstances and and things that you heard and encounters that you had. He was wooing you to Himself. And then once He had won you, once you were saved, then He began this process of shaping you into the image of Christ. This has been a very long process, hasn't it? 
It's gone for a long time and, and there's been a lot of things involved, experiences in your life that He's allowed you to have, teaching that He's allowed you to hear, Bible study and prayer and, and, and uh, all kinds of things like that. Many, uh, day after day after week after week, month after month, year after year, this work of God has been going on in your life, right? There's been God's discipline at times in your life. There have been times of great trial that you've gone through that have shaped you and made you into the person you are as a Christian today. But what is true about you is true about the person who's sitting next to you. And Paul's question to us is, are you going to tear all that down just so you can have a hamburger? Are you going to destroy the work of God for the sake of food? Just so I can exercise my liberty to do something, am I going to destroy that work of God in, in that person? Well, how does it destroy the work of God? Well, it destroys the work of God in this way. If that person has scruples in some area that I don't share, they think that it would be wrong for them. And in fact, he tells us in verse 14, it would be wrong for them. He says it is evil to do something that your conscience tells you not to do. Verse 14. And so, so God has cultivated and He's brought this brother or sister in Christ, this person we fellowship with here in our church or in any, uh, any believer, he's brought them along. And one of the ways he's brought them along is he's developed this fellowship, this communion with them. And their ear is attentive to him. Now, they don't, they're not hearing everything quite the way you're hearing things. And you've discovered some things that they don't know yet. But their ear is attentive to God and they're listening to God and they're walking with God. And the things that they are refraining from, the scruples they are adhering to, they're doing so with thanksgiving, he said earlier. So they're doing it in faith. And, 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 and key to that is that tenderness, that sensitivity they have to the voice of God, to what they hear God saying to them. Now you come in like a bull in a china closet as a strong person and you come charging in and you go, oh, don't worry about that. You can do that. And so the person does it. But their conscience isn't clear. And their conscience is hurt. And when their conscience is hurt, that tender voice, that still small voice of God in their ear, they no longer hear. And suddenly you're tearing down what God has spent years building up. And all for the sake of a piece of meat? Or a drink of wine? Or to do something on a day that you didn't really need to do? And we could go on and on and on and on and on and on, couldn't we? In all kinds of areas. So Paul is saying to us, come on, folks, 
Let's get our priorities straight. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so what we want to be about is we want to be about building up one another. We want to be about loving one another. We want to be about, about in creating in the body of Christ an environment of peace where people can relate to one another in comfort and joy and joy of the Holy Spirit and, and, and where we're encouraging one another to walk with God. That's what Paul is telling us here. He says, and so we discover that Paul says all things are good. So objectively, we know that everything is good. But subjectively, there are two conditions in which some of these things which are objectively good become subjectively evil. And one is in verse 14. Something that is objectively good becomes subjectively evil when the person thinks it's evil. So to the, quote, weak person, a good thing is an evil thing because they think it's evil. And so, in fact, it is evil if they do it. But there's another way that things that are objectively good become subjectively evil, and that's with the strong person. Because you'll see there in, uh, in verse, uh, verse 20, he says, at the end of verse 20, he says, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So all things are good, he says, but if for a strong if a strong person takes that liberty they have and gives offense, i.e. causes another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, to act contrary to their conscience, then it has become evil even to the strong person. So objectively all things are clean, objectively all things are good. They've been created by God, as Paul says in First Timothy four. For us to enjoy and to receive with thanksgiving from God, all things are good. But subjectively, things are evil when someone thinks they're evil or they're evil when someone who doesn't think they're evil uses them to tear down a brother or sister in Christ or uses them in such a way that a brother or sister is torn down. Then he says... It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So, the strong who feel they have liberty, it would be evil if they did something that caused their brother to stumble. But it, was, it is good it's a good thing when having this liberty, they don't exercise the liberty because they know that in somehow exercising that liberty, they're going to injure a brother or sister in Christ. Now, that's a good thing. If they'll go, well, you know, I could do that. I got the freedom to do it. But so-and-so over here, I'm going to hurt them if I do that. And I don't want to do that. Now, remember, I tried to last week I tried to to emphasize that that Paul is not saying here that the that that the strong can never exercise their freedom. 
their liberty. Paul obviously does. And, and he's not even saying that the strong have to do it so secretly that the weak never find out. Paul obviously had no problem with the weak knowing that he had these liberties. And he makes a point of it. I know I've got this liberty, he says. I'm convinced in Jesus. And he's writing it to a whole church that he knows has weak people in it. So it's not, it's not that we can't ever, if we're, if we're strong, it's not that we can't ever exercise our freedom or liberty. It's not that we can't ever let anybody know that we have this liberty. The question is, how do we do it? So we don't flaunt our freedom. We don't brag about our freedom. And we don't get pushy with our freedom. We don't shove our freedom on other people who don't feel that freedom. We exercise it with discretion. We exercise it with caution. Now, the question came up in my mind, and I think, well, how does a weak person ever get to a point where they're a strong person? How does a weak person ever grow? I mean, obviously, we would think that being strong in these areas is commendable. It's a good thing. I think Paul would want everybody to have that freedom. In fact, when we read in Colossians, he's pretty strong about don't let anybody ever, you know, don't end up, you know, letting yourself being controlled by decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not such. Colossians chapter two. Okay, so so he and he and he he warns against people who are forbidding marriage and forgetting forbidding. Uh, eating certain meats, etc., etc., etc. So, in Paul's mind, this idea of liberty is a good thing, and and he would hope that Christians would eventually get to that point. Well, how are they going to get to that point if us strong people don't harangue them? How are they going to get to that point if those who have liberty don't keep shoving it in their face and saying, "Hey, you know, you ought to grow up. You ought to know you got this freedom." Yeah. The Holy Spirit is going to change them. Let me tell you about my own experience. I grew up, uh, as many of you know, I grew up in a very fundamentalist uh, type of background. And, uh, and as I was growing up as a young person in the teenager, I had a whole list of things that were wrong. Couldn't do. Okay? I didn't necessarily consider it burdensome, you know, but there were a lot of things that my friends would go do, and I said, I can't do that, you know. Can't do that. Can't do that. Can't go to movies, you know. Can't go to dances, you know. Uh, can't this, can't that, on and on and on, you know. You know. Don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do, type of thing, you know. So that was my whole Christian life. Well, my whole Christian life it was an important part of my Christian life. I don't feel that way anymore. I have tremendous liberty and freedom. A lot of those things I still don't do because I never learned to do them when I was a kid. You know, and I have no real desire to do them. So I still, some of those things I don't do. My wife wishes I'd dance, but, you know, there's no way I'm going to embarrass myself by trying to do it now. I never learned to do it when I was a kid. You know. So I just don't do those things. Some of them. Some of them I do do. But some of them I don't. But not because I feel some moral compunction against doing them. Now, how did I get from point A to point B? How did I get from that point where I had all this list of do's and don'ts to the point now where I have a relative degree of freedom, probably not as much as I 
the Lord would want me to have, but at least a relative degree of freedom. How did I get that? Well, it wasn't because people kept preaching at me I ought to be free in those areas. I, I don't think anybody ever did. It was just that over a period of years, I grew closer and closer to Christ. And as I grew closer and closer to Christ, slowly I began to figure out the things he cared about and the things he didn't care about. And so, if we want younger, or not younger, but if we want weaker brothers and sisters in Christ to grow to strength in areas of conviction and conscience, we don't do it by trying to get them to act some way contrary to their conscience. We get them there by encouraging them to grow closer to Christ. To walk closer to Christ. And that means that one of the things we're going to encourage them to do is to very carefully listen to their conscience. And that's exactly what Paul does here. So my obligation, if I'm a stronger person with the weak, when I'm exercising my liberty or if I know that they are aware that I have this liberty or I happen to be talking about it in their midst, one of the things that I should be doing if I love them in Christ is saying, you know, I know you don't have that freedom. And I solemnly charge you before Christ that you do not do this. Because to do so for you would be wrong. I don't want you to do it. You're not obligated to do it. I felt the freedom, but I know you don't feel that freedom. Don't ever do anything you don't know for sure is right to do. So you see, we can encourage our younger brother, or no, I keep saying younger, see how prejudice we get in these areas? Our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. We can, we can help them grow in the faith by encouraging them to be cultivating that tender ear to the voice of God in them. Which is expressed partially, not exclusively, but partially through their conscience. And so we can be cultivating that and we can be building that up in that in them. And as we are doing that, they will be going, growing closer to Christ and someday they'll be going, oh, you know what? That's not an issue to God. I have this, I have this not only do I have this liberty, I can do this and give thanks to God. So he says in verse 23, he says, the faith which you have, have as your own conscience before God. Blessed is the one who, is, who uh, does not condemn himself in what he approves. And, and so what Paul is saying there is kind of what we've been saying all along. This is, he's saying, if you've got a conviction, have it as your own conviction. In other words, it's not something you shove down somebody else's throat. It's for you. It's for you. And if you are fully convinced that you have a liberty or a freedom, then you're blessed. You can do that thing and you can give thanks to God and you can enjoy it because you know that God has given you all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. So you can do it and go, God, thank you for the blessing of this, you know, of this uh, prime rib steak. I, it's a blessing to have. And you can give thanks to God for it. You can receive it with gratitude. And you're blessed because you can do that. But you don't do it 
in such a way that it causes somebody else to stumble. You do it discreetly. You do it considerately. You do it in love. And you'll be happy. You'll be blessed, he says. Same word there. On the flip side, we have the last verse, verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Now, how does he know his eating is not from faith? Well, he didn't say anything about feeling guilty there. What's the the indicator that Paul knows it's not from faith? He doubts. Those are are antonyms, right? (laughs) You can't have doubt and faith at the same time. They're one or the other, right? So if you're doubting, it's not a faith. So if when you eat, there's some reservation, some question in your mind, some doubt in your mind as to whether or not this is pleasing and honoring to God, whether God has given this to you, he says, then that's not faith. Exactly. Yeah. And the measure is, can I give thanks? Can I say with just full freedom from the depths of my heart, can I say, thank you, God, for this thing I have you're letting me do or this thing you're letting me partake of or whatever. Whatever this area of freedom is that we're talking about in your experience. Can you, can you receive it with gratitude? If you can't, you're doubting. And if you're doubting, there's no faith. Now again, Paul's using faith in a very limited sense here. Some commentators, oh, particularly in ancient church times, read this very broadly. And so what they, they kind of change their interpretation or their understanding of faith when they get to this verse and they see it broadly as faith in Christ. And so they would say, from, based on this verse, they would say that, uh, that everything that a non-Christian does because they don't believe in Christ is sin. Okay. Uh, well, maybe you want to argue that from some other passages in Scripture, but that's not what this passage is saying. Because Paul is still using faith in this very limited sense of conviction or conscience here. He's not using it in the broad sense of faith in Christ. And what he's saying is, in anything you do, or anything that you partake of, or any liberty that you exercise, if you do not have confidence, conviction, conscience, that tells you that this is a good thing, this is a clean thing, this is a wholesome thing, you can thank God for it. If you don't have that, to do it is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. This has helped me out of a number of points in my life. I remember one time I was wrestling with it. It was, a really, it was actually a really big decision I was wrestling with. It was going to be a life-changing decision. I was wrestling with it. it was, uh, shortly after I came to Trinity here, and Bill Ellis was the pastor. And I remember Bill pointing this verse out to me. He says, well, Rick, can you do it in faith? If you can't do it in faith, it's sin. And I went, can't do it in faith. And I answered the question. So it's a tremendous guide then for the weak. So for the strong, the admonition is know what your liberties are. Exercise them with discretion and full gratitude. Enjoying the blessing you have from God. Being always careful 
not to cause a brother or sister to stumble. To the weak, do not judge your stronger brother and never do anything that violates your conscience. Never act out of doubt, but only act out of faith. Okay? Next week we'll go on and explore some more of these issues about the unity of the church in this issue.